The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad, it's just a show. Imagine a world of superheroes, of men and women with incredible powers dedicated to truth and justice for all. If you imagine that, that is a child's fantasy and you are a fool, according to this movie that we are reviewing today. This is Totally Super. Welcome to Totally Super, where we review every superhero movie ever made. My name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And today we are reviewing 2009's Watchmen. Now, if you think that we're reviewing Let's get the bleak. Watchmen... Yeah, if you're thinking we're reviewing the Watchmen comic or the brand new Watchmen series, that's not what we're doing. Have you seen the Watchmen series? I have not yet. Okay, so I'm not going to spoil anything um, except for the basic premise of the series, which you could get from the trailer, which is the Watchmen series takes place in 2019, but it's the 2019 after the 1985 as presented in Watchmen. And which is a brilliant surviving characters are or surviving characters are in it um, in much, much older fashion. Um, but uh, but the show doesn't center around them. It centers around the world that they left behind. And the main character is not anyone who is seen in this. It is incredibly good and is being used as, um, among other things, an allegory for the rise of fascism and the, the experience of black trauma. Um which is astounding. It is on HBO. Ooh. It's worth watching. It is an ex- it's an incredible experience, and I can't give it a high enough recommendation. It is excellent. It is not this. It is much more grounded than what we're going to talk about today. Um, but mm-hmm. it is worth watching. So if that's what you wanted to know about, that's my spoiler-free review. Uh, uh, go check it out. But I was sitting at, in my living room the other night, and we were watching that and I was like, you know, we haven't done a totally super in like six weeks because we like, we keep saying, hey, we're in the new season, a totally super. And then we make you wait six weeks because we're terrible. Um, I was because like, we I know what we lives. have to do. We have to do the Watchmen film, um, which is important in its own way. And, uh, Very much so. and something that I have seen many times, but hadn't seen in a while. Um, and I don't think I've really watched it since the rise of the Marvel Universe. So I was really interested in revisiting it. And so I gave Arthur a buzz and I was like, hey, let's go ahead and do Watchmen. And immediately, like 10 seconds later, you were like, yes. So here we are doing 2009's yeah. Watchmen. Um, what is Even your the film aside, just talking about the comic, um, yeah. it is almost impossible to overstate the importance of of Watchmen in the history of comics. Uh, when people, when you ask people, what was the moment when comic books went from being considered just dime store stuff for kids and actually a vehicle for true, like when did the graphic novel originate? Uh, people will usually have two answers. They will either have Returns by Frank Miller. Oh, shoot. You beat me to it. Or they will have Watchmen. Yeah, I was going to say The Dark Knight Returns has got to be the other one, right? Yeah, I was so, going to say that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember. Uh, so so we have said, you know, you have had a recent birthday um, and I am three years older than you. And so I remember these comics among my very cool middle school friends. 
um, as I was entering middle school and as I was just discovering comics, I discovered comic books in, um, in gosh, it, it must've been 1985 is when I started reading comic books. And I started reading, I've talked about this before. I owned a couple of comics before, but the first time I started collecting was, was, was with uncanny X-Men 215. And I was aware of comics and what was going on. And I was so into it during that time. And it's worth noting. Um, yes, I said it. Take a drink if you're doing it. Um, that The Dark Knight Returns came out as a four-part limited series and then as a, as a graphic novel in between February and June of 1986, followed by Watchmen, uh, which came out as 12, episode, uh, 12 issues between September of 1986 and October of 1987. So in a year, you got Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen, both from DC. DC, which was not doing well. X-Men ruled the day. Spider-Man ruled the day. DC was sort of an afterthought at the time. So for them to come out with these two seminal books um, is, is extraordinary. And I remember looking up to my friends at the time just going, I can't believe what you're talking about. This can't be real. And I remember opening Dark Knight Returns and kind of digging it, but not understanding it and watching opening Watchmen and being entirely turned off because it was like, I didn't like the art and there was just tons of words. I was like, there's no Wolverine claws in this. This is dumb. And I'm really putting like not reading it until after seeing the movie. Did you read this before or after seeing the movie? I read this before seeing the movie. Really? How old it were you? It is, uh, I it was 2007, 2008, so however old I was then. So like um, a year before. It is a interesting, I certainly, it is a comic that marks a major turn from the idea of, yay, superheroes and everything in primary colors and, you know, in very simple storylines. Even, uh, even X-Men at the time, which, you know, was delving into things like, uh, uh, you know, like prejudice and, uh, you know, and the mutant metaphor, uh, they were tackling some heavy issues. It the concept of maybe superheroes are the problem uh, or that kind of thinking about superheroes is the problem that that had not really been brought up before. This was really, I think, one of the first true postmodern takes on uh, heroes in general. And it certainly is a reflection of the time. Uh, it's. You know, gosh, the the 1980s feels like so long ago at this point. But it was, uh, you know, the 90s were overall a pretty, they were a pretty cheery decade, as I remember. The 80s, not so much. Uh, the 80s was when a lot of people were getting hit by the true face of, you know, of rampant, uh, no, you know, no restrictions capitalism. Plus, you had some major jingoism going on between the United States and the Soviet Union, which was actually a thing at the time. And, uh, you know, so it made for it made for some pretty good fodder. Yeah, I would say that there's a that there certainly is the sense of urban decay was big. Um, I, you know, I spent my first full decade in the 80s from age three to age 13 and I don't remember it as being as dark as all that. Um, it's worth noting. I gotta stop saying it, man. To to those of you um, out there on Facebook who called me out for saying it's worth noting, I yell at myself like at home now in front of my wife. I'll be talking to you. It's worth no. Oh no. So thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember 
Batman in 89 coming out and thinking that was super cool. I remember Ghostbusters. I remember today I watched a 1989 film, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Uh, there was still um, plenty of, of optimism, maybe dis- un- displaced optimism, maybe optimism in the face of suburban optimism while there was urban fright. Um, but I will That's say, a- um, I remember... And I don't know if you're old enough to remember this. You might just be three years too young to remember this. I remember being afraid of the bomb. Uh, there was mm. there 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 was a real sense that this might be it, um, and I was deathly deathly afraid of nuclear annihilation when I was a child because it just felt like it could happen. At many, at any minute, and I feel like this is a reflection of this. Did you have that sense back in the eighties, or or was it sort of shielded from you? Or you were all over the world uh, at this point, right? Uh, yeah, I was overseas during the eighties, so it was sort of I got kind of a shadow of what uh, people were experiencing back in America. I mean, yes, we were definitely learning about the bomb, and I was definitely watching the same movies like War Games, and uh, I mean, anti nuclear proliferation was like the PSA of the decade. Uh, it's so interesting because it's, it's not, I mean, it's still an issue today. There's, I mean, all of those missiles are still out there, but we don't talk about it with nearly the same degree that, uh, we did back then. Um, also it's interesting that you notice that you noted urban decay. Cause that certainly is, I, I think you're absolutely right. That is a major part of the eighties. If you think about it based on all of the films, that I ever saw, and actually, I guess, kind of the reality from what I from what I've learned of it, of New York City in the '80s. You know, rather than Times Square being the place where you've got the M and M store and like the big Sparrows on the corner, and you know, and just sort of lights and glamour and everything, New York City was seen as a hellscape in many, many ways, and uh, was crime a scary was a much place bigger to go. problem. I was, yeah, I would it not was have terrifying. Guys- I was, from I now, was more I scared taking, of New York than I was of the bomb. Uh, I am taking my my eight year old and thirteen year old to New York for the twentieth time in two weeks to do, go do Christmas time, and it is it, it feels like you're safe anywhere um, as long as you're within mm-hmm. like five blocks of Times Square anywhere any time of day. It just feels like it's a safe place, and it did not feel like that um, back then. And I remember the one time I went, feeling like this is this is bad. This is what this is what the bad people. And keep in mind, I was from L.A. I was from a city, but L.A. was so sprawling. There are areas of L.A. you knew not to go to South Central, right? But you, there, you know, if you were just driving to the airport, you're just going downtown. You're used to seeing the strip clubs, but other than that, you're, you know, you're. Mm-hmm. It seems like an okay place. Where in fact, it was probably not as bad in New York as we all thought it was, and L.A. was probably a lot worse than we thought it was. At the time. Mm, interesting. Um, but New York, um, all of those, like in LA, it's all spread out. In New York, all of those cultures are right on top of each other. Yeah. They, 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 the New York City as a city is not that large from, from north to south or east to west. Um, it's the it's that New York built up and down that made it so crowded. Um, it, I think it's, I think that it is impossible to overstate the importance of Watchmen on comic books in general and where we are now in terms of movies and where we are now in terms of how we think about the characters. Um, the, I don't think you even have Avengers without Watchmen. I don't think that you have Tony Stark 
without Watchmen because Tony Stark is, if nothing else, a, a meta superhero. Um, uh, yeah, the MCU version. I don't think you have that. I don't think you have um, the the darkness which can pervade X Men at, at times. I don't think you have the idea of what are Watchmen is almost the pulp fiction of of superhero comic books, not because of, of the darkness and the satire that it brings, but also because it just kind of shows superheroes at home and they're not like, haha, we're playing baseball games at the mutant mansion. Like, I think that it is a, it, it is the idea that real people are in these costumes. Yes. To a depth that was not being explored. I think the X-Men and Spider-Man were, were doing it a little bit, but I think that really the deconstruction of the superhero and the eventual reconstruction of the superhero, it's worth no, oh, doing it again. It's at the same time, you're looking at, at, at key things like crisis on infinite earthers are happening, which then is causing the reboots of re- reboots of things like Superman. Dark Knight returns is happening. You're having the man of steel comics by John Byrne that are coming out at the same time, which are, which are leading you into a, you know, a depowered Superman where Superman can't just do anything. He's not a God anymore. He's just a really, really powerful guy. Um, and you're spending more time with these people at home than you are actually out in the super battlefield. And I think that all of that is predicated on Watchmen raising the bar. Um, it raises the bar for all the things that come after it, as does the night dark Knight returns. I think that as we go on in this upcoming series that we're about to do, the Dark Knight Returns cannot be also overstated in in its importance of saying, what if Batman was not an archetype, but what if Batman was a guy? And mm-hmm. I think that that is one of the things that Watchmen does so very, very well. Um, and using superheroes to tell a deeper story, it's great that the X-Men were using it as a parallel to racism, but this is this is next level. So this is, Yeah, this is a whole other level. If I want to give comic books to non-comic book fans and say, read these two, these are the two, the two you mentioned, Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen are the ones yeah. that I do now. Zack Snyder, the director of the Watchmen. So what we're book, saying oh, Dark- is that this was an incredibly high bar that uh, was set for when they decided to do a film of this. Like I remember when the that's... trailer came out and I'm trying to remember, I may have been with you when the trailer came out. Um, I kind of remember seeing it before Freddy versus Jason. It's right around that time, um, which is doesn't make any sense because that would have been 16 years ago. So I don't, I'm talking out of my butt. But I do remember seeing the trailer for Watchmen. <laughs> Having never read Watchmen, I knew the impact of Watchmen and I knew the, the smiley face. Certainly, I was like, oh, they're doing that. And the big question was, how can they possibly do that? It doesn't it seems unfilmable. And certainly Alan Moore mm-hmm. felt that it was unfilmable and that it shouldn't be made into a movie. Um, yeah. He also feels that way about the current series. To use Zack Snyder, who burst on the scene with the highly underrated remake of Dawn of the Dead. Have you seen the, the remake of Dawn of the Dead? Yes, that's the one in the mall. Yeah, but the modern version of yeah, it? Yeah, that was good. It's a really good film, and I was not a zombie fan at the time that, that came out. That was sort of my intro to the zombie genre, of which then I added to. Um, the... Well, Snyder had also done 300 by this point, hadn't he? Yes, he did that and he did 300. And I think that while that propelled him into into the limelight in terms of his ability to modernize and to create, you know, interesting things without a lot to work with, 300 is what burst him onto the scene. 300 was Mm -hmm. like nothing we had seen. 
at the time. And it seems so cliche now, but of course, anything that was cliche had a first time around. And yeah, that was the trope creator. 300 was so faithful to the book that it was based on, the comic book it was based on, while also creating iconic moment after iconic moment after iconic moment on screen. It was groundbreaking, but also there are people who tired of it and it became a bit of a joke as well. People have, you know, come back to 300 and and felt very much like 300 is overblown. It's kind of a one trick pony in terms of what it's doing. It does something great visually and then it kind of does it over and over and over again. Um, I have watched 300 in the last five years and I will tell you, it is not nearly as compelling as it was the first time I saw it. 300 Mm. has not aged as I thought that it would, mostly because it's, you know, to quote Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, it was so, so obsessed with whether or not it could do something, he didn't stop to think of it should. It it broke ground on what could be done, and unfortunately, the fallout from that is that everyone tried to do that, and then it turned out that maybe... You know, you have the anti all of this. You have the anti Zack Snyder when John Favreau turns around with Tony Stark and shows up and is just like, yeah, we're having fun. Shouldn't this be like, you know, we're in a costume. Shouldn't we be having a good time? And suddenly mm-hmm. that is where we are. Um, I remember seeing this in the theater with my track off co-host Alexia, whose very first comment. Oh, so before we go any further with this. So we've always said that Totally Super reflects the rating of the film that it is that is based on. So this podcast is going to have curse words on it. There's you just can't get around some of the things that happened. Uh, this is a rated R podcast because it's a rated R movie. You shouldn't really be listening to this podcast or watching the movie. We're not going to go crazy, but you know it is what it is. Alexia said as soon as the lights came, it goes. It's about time we saw some dick. <laughs> Her very <laughs> first word, and I I'll never forget. It. I was like, what do you mean? She's like. She's like, that was the I major que- that, that the was movie. the only question that anybody had before the film that they were saying okay are they going to show the blue penis that was the she only was, question she was all i see when i go to films i see i see ass tits and pussy it's all i see all the time when i go into the film every film i go and see that's what's up on the screen it's about time i had something to look at and i just laughed so hard <laughs> because one it's so very her and two they don't shy away from it in this yeah. at all. That 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 penis has a lot of screen time, a lot of which screen I time. I think is which, and you'll you'll hear me say this uh, again throughout this podcast. I overall, I was very impressed with how this movie reflected the uh, the essence of the comic. And yes, to I mean, I can't I can't tell you exactly why, but I just have this gut feeling that had they shied away from the big blue penis, they would have been doing a disservice and a disrespect to the source material, which also was very upfront about its full frontal. Well, and here's the thing, and we'll talk about it as we get into the film, but the movie, you're right, it, it, it absolutely gives you the essence, the visual essence of the comic. The question I'm going to walk away from is, is does it deliver the actual essence of the comic and the viewing i have right now is very different than the viewing i had this was my favorite superhero movie for a little bit for a couple of years especially the director's cut i really was into it it was a good 
it was a good like two hours and 15 minutes long. It really got into it. I enjoyed all the characters. I cared about the comedian. The Vietnam stuff was hard to watch, but also just really dark and intense. The 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 mm-hmm. little vignettes you have about everybody's except Ozymandias's Ozim, uh, backstory was really cool. I really felt that visually it felt like a comic book, but I didn't read the comic book till after I saw the movie. And when I read the comic book, I was like, gosh, this comic book has a lot of words in it. And all the big splash pages are what the movie shows, but I'm not getting the same sense watching the movie that I am watching the comic. And then I kind of put it away because frankly, there's more superhero stuff than anything out there right now. And I, I, there's super stuff I still haven't been able to watch. Um, the Umbrella Academy, I haven't been able to watch. It's like the X-Men on on Netflix. I haven't been able to watch it because there's just not time. They're doing a crisis on infinite earths right now in the CW that I'm excited about. Um, so there are, there are many ways in which I think this film did do an accurate reflection uh, of the spirit of the comics with a there few are. key areas in which I think they they missed the mark um, that we'll talk about. And the question is, did they need to miss the mark? Because if they had hit the mark, does it make a good movie? Because a good comic does not necessarily make a good movie. I will say this in the ultimate defense of a film that I am going to damn a little bit while I'm here. I would not have read the comic if not for the film. And when I read the Mm -hmm. comic, it's much like Lord of the Rings. I used to have a really hard time getting through Lord of the Rings because you had Aragorn and Legolas and Aragorn of Arathorn and you had, you know, Theoden and, and Theodred and Eowyn and Eomer. And you know what I mean? Like by the, like, mm-hmm. I was like, I can't keep it straight. It's, it, it, it fried my brain. It was boring after a little while, but after the first Lord of the Rings movie, and especially after the second, I can read Lord of the Rings really easily. Now. Yeah. Because well, it's because I've you have got, a streamlined framework that the movie provided you with. Yeah, I have faces and voices that I immediately associate. And the same is true for Watchmen. The movie has made Watchmen a more understandable and more emotional read for me than it was before. So whatever else Watchmen did, I think that it does glorify the source material. And I think that Zack Snyder, for good or ill, he respects the source material and that respect has made Mm -hmm. me more appreciative of the source material. So I think that Watchmen as a companion piece to the, to the comic of the same name is absolutely a worthwhile thing to exist and is for, especially for the, for the uninitiated into Watchmen or maybe people who aren't that into comic book movies, but are into a weird, intense sci-fi drama. I think that it might mm-hmm. be able to attract people who are not into the capes and cowls. The question is, would it? Yeah. And that's something we'll talk about too. But if you can, please provide us with the plot for Watchmen. All right. The plot of Watchmen. First, to set the stage, imagine that there have been superheroes for the past few decades, much like in the Marvel or DC world. Now imagine what the U.S. government would do during World War II in Vietnam if it actually had superheroes actually working for it. Okay, cool. You've pretty much got the historical backstory. That's all I'm going to touch on. Now, it's 1985, during the height of the nuclear scare in the Cold War, and heroes have essentially been outlawed by the government. A retired superhero, a thug called the Comedian, is murdered in his high-rise apartment by a masked intruder. His death is investigated by a borderline psychopath hero vigilante named Rorschach. Imagine the unholy love child of Dick Tracy and the Punisher, and you've got the gist. 
Rorschach believes that someone might be targeting superheroes, and he goes to warn his pal Daniel, who used to be the hero called Night Owl. Think Batman, but like way nicer of a guy. Meanwhile, we jump over to another superhero, perhaps THE superhero, Dr. Manhattan, who, thanks to a freak accident with some kind of atomic collider, is now the only hero with honest-to-God superpowers, among them the ability to reshape matter in reality, as we learn from a terrifying flashback of him in the killing fields of Vietnam. He is borderline omnipotent, and he's dating Lori Jupiter, who, like her mother, used to be a hero called the Silk Spectre. Long story short, their relationship ends pretty early on in the film, and she goes to Daniel for support. Dr. Manhattan gets ambushed by a reporter during a TV interview, with the news that his powers caused the cancer of the first woman that he ever loved. As the crowd turns on him, he vanishes, only to later turn up on Mars, where he has decided to live. Rorschach and Daniel go to warn the last of their old supergroup, Adrian Velt, also named Ozymandias, about the superhero killer. Adrian is the smartest person on the planet, and has leveraged his superhero status into a multi-billion dollar industry. He, too, is attacked by an assassin, though he kills him without any real trouble. Daniel and Rorschach find out through their investigations that the assassin was hired by an organization called Pyramid Industries. Lori and Daniel, meanwhile, have something of a blossoming relationship, burgeoned by their memories of the good times fighting crime. They decide to go out and be heroes again for the night, ending up rescuing several families from a tenement fire. It kindles their passion for life and each other, resulting in the best visual sex metaphor that we have seen on film since the train entered the tunnel in Hitchcock's North by Northwest. <laughs> Rorschach tries to run down an ex-villain for more information, but finds the poor old man with a bullet in his head in his apartment, and the place surrounded by police who think that Rorschach did it. The frame job results in him being thrown into prison, where we see several scenes of him brutally laying waste to any inmate who comes after him. Daniel and Lori break Rorschach out of prison, and after further investigation, they find that Pyramid Industries, who hired the man to kill Ozymandias, is in fact owned by Ozymandias. Breaking into Adrian's office and hacking into his computer by figuring out his password from the title of a book on his desk, a concept that is so <laughs> 1980s hacking trope, it is adorable. They learn he has a secret base in Antarctica. Daniel and Rorschach set out to confront him. Lori talks with Dr. Manhattan on Mars, to convince him to come back and help the human race. I'm not going to go into it too much here. It involves something about her discovering she's the comedian's daughter, human life being a miracle. D did I mention it's on Mars? She and Manhattan teleport to Antarctica, where we learn, Adrian Velt believes that the human race is headed towards nuclear holocaust. The only way to stop the world's governments from nuking the planet is to unite them against a common threat. So Adrian has somehow figured out how to mimic Dr. Manhattan's power signature, and with it, he intends to nuke some dozen cities around the globe. The world will believe Dr. Manhattan is attacking them, and will therefore unite. Peace achieved at great cost. The comedian, as it turned out, had learned of his plans, and therefore Adrian himself had to kill him. Rorschach and Daniel swear to stop him, but then Adrian is like, Oh, wait, did I say I intend to do that? Because psych, I totally already did it like half an hour ago. Incredibly, Adrian's plan actually works. The world is unified by the destruction. But Rorschach is enraged and swears to tell the true story. Dr. Manhattan understands that the truth would break this peace for which so many have died already, and therefore is forced to kill Rorschach to stop him from talking. And that's kind of the end. Daniel and Lori presumably end up together. Dr. Manhattan leaves for another galaxy. 
Adrian gets away with it scot-free. Except we do have a scene where Rorschach's journal is dropped into a newspaper office, indicating that the truth is out there, presumably waiting to be found. Perhaps that is a story for another TV series. Fiend. Or is it scene? Because if you, like me, decided that you needed something new to go with Totally Super, perhaps you watch the ultimate cut of Watchmen. Wherein... There's 35 minutes of an animated story aboard a pirate freighter. Oh, they did the, uh, that's right. They did the, um, what was it? The Black Voyage? The, 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 I was going to, I had it ready to go. I was going to see the Black Pearl. And no, it's not the Black Pearl. It is, because um, that would just be very, very different. Um, no, the Tales of the Black Freighter, which was done separately and released as a, as a direct-to-video thing, but they have integrated mm-hmm. it into the, in, into the world where there is a boy reading a comic book at um, at a newsstand in the middle of New York when everything's going on, and you keep cutting to him reading the tales of the Black Freighter, Freighter and the only time you which see which is him essentially in, what they did in the comic. Yeah, the only thing you the only time you see him in the movie in the version that you see otherwise is like right before New York explodes is him and the newsstand guy. And they they're mm-hmm. the ones who explode New York. But I watched an additional like 25 minute in the middle of the director's cut, the ultimate cut, the version of Watchmen that I watched that I finished five minutes before we recorded. And it took me four nights to watch is three hours and 38 minutes long. Good so Lord. can I tell you this? Probably this Tales of the Black, Black Freighter is an interesting side thing to go watch. Do not watch the ultimate cut of Watchmen. It's too much Watchmen. It's too long. It's too much. And I can say that it it is now, so poorly. You, you have seen the, but you, you have seen the original cut of Watchmen, right? Because I want to make sure we're reviewing. I the saw same the, film. the I saw the theatrical cut, and I saw the director's cut. Now I've seen the ultimate cut, and I would say the of the three go with the theatrical cut. There's a reason it's the theatrical cut. I think it's still like two hours and 25 minutes long. Um, yeah, it's still a good it length. Is, it is absolutely sufficient to get you Watchmen. And I think everything else, if you're a super Watchmen fan, as I was at the time, go for the director's cut and maybe watch Tales of the Black Freighter separate. It has nothing to do with the story. Here's the basic tales of the Black Freighter. There's a guy, he's on a ship. The ship crashes, and because the ship crashes, he's stuck in the bot with the bodies of the people he's with. It drives him crazy and he escapes with the body and then the dismembered head of one of the people that he's out with. He fights a shark. He gets back to shore. He has visions of his wife and daughter being carried away by by evil pirates and being impaled their heads being impaled so he goes back to shore to get revenge the city is quiet he goes into the city he murders a couple of people into the city and goes into his old home and find that finds that people have moved into his home and so he hides in the corner and attacks them only to find out that it is actually his wife and daughter who are still in the home and who've been waiting for him and he murders his wife and realizing he's murdered his wife he joins a pirate ship of the damned and that is it's just too much in the middle of Watchmen. Well, it's yeah. The thing is, it also it was sprinkled throughout the. I think it it, it was there was a a section of that story that was at the end of every Watchmen comic when it came out, uh, and even then it is 
It is hard to figure out how the two are related. They are certainly related more symbolically than plot-wise. Um, you know, certainly they're both stories about somebody trying to do good and actually becoming uh, and actually doing horrific yeah, things. Yeah, I guess they're like it. tonal cousins. Like the tone is certainly yeah. I, the same. Tonal cousins is a good term for it. it and, and I'd even say that even when I was reading the comic. Like, and I, I would love for somebody to, uh, I would love for somebody to actually take me through and say why they are, why they are linked. Because as much as I can see, they are like tonal second cousins at best. Yeah, it's, um, it's too much and it's distracting. And the way it's peppered through the film, um, I find myself distracted in the, in sort of the emotional through line the film's presenting. So yeah. I can tell you what, what I. The frustrating, the frustrated feeling that I have is largely based on this version of the film that I just watched. But I have to tell you, I'm frustrated. I'm a frustrated. I need to start dude before right you now. get before you get into talking to this. Let's so just to be clear, we are talking about the theatrical cut. Yes, we are talking about the theatrical cut. But I did not just watch the theatrical cut. I watched the other cut. Right. And I think the I think the problem is. I'm going to start by saying that just before anything else, I'm going to start by putting out my flag on this, which is that both upon first viewing and upon second viewing, I do have to take my hat off to the theatrical cut in that it takes an incredibly sprawling story and actually over the course of two and a half hours, even though, yes, it has to you know skate over a couple things, it hits all the major parts, all the key points in a way that is clear and relatively easy to follow. Uh, like this theatrical cut tells a story from start to finish that you are able to follow. And to do that with Watchmen, that on its own is an achievement. And I'll take it a step further. Before I read the comic, before I saw the multiple cuts, before I saw the frustrating cut I just watched, I loved Watchmen and not liked loved Watchmen, but this is a pre-Avengers love of Watchmen. I feel like, and, and more pre-Avengers, it's pre-Avengers in that Avengers did something that that I never thought that, um, especially, uh, specifically Endgame, made me do something I never thought that a superhero film could do, which is it made me weep. It made me cry. It it reached into my soul and squeezed my heart, which is something I never imagined when I first saw Iron Man, which is coming around right around the time as Watchmen. I never imagined that Iron Man would eventually squeeze my heart and make me cry. The fact that Watchmen made me feel and think the way that it did at the time it came out is a masterpiece and is remarkable. And I have to give it to it for being able to, you know, at the time, all we really had is like Spider-Man 2 and X-Men, which were really good, but they didn't get you the way that, you know, Marvel has figured out how to get you. But Marvel, but, but Watchmen got me. Watchmen really affected me when I watched it. And I showed it off. I was a Watchmen evangelist. You know, I mean, you've known me long enough, right? What were the areas that, uh, what were the, what were the key areas that affected you? Um, oh gosh, uh, I felt that th- there was real poetry to Dr. Manhattan's story. I thought that Rorschach was so, you know, w- was so well conceived. You say Punisher and I say he is, he's what, ba- <clears throat> excuse me, he's what Batman really is. I think that Batman is, you know, 
Night Owl is the image of Batman, but the personality of Batman, how grossly psychotic you have to be to be Batman is Rorschach. Mm, that's a good point. Um, uh, I felt that it was... These were adults doing adult things, and the music was incredible. The opening sequence of the alternate history to the times they are changing by Bob Dylan is is I think it's Bob Dylan, right? I think it is. Um, yeah, uh, it's it's remarkable. It was the first time I had ever heard Leonard, Leonard Cohen's "Hallelujah." I'd never heard that song before the sex scene in the sky. <laughs> um, I think uh, the uh, was, and and I think what the music I. Just real quick, the uh, the music was incredible, um, and actually a lot of that credit I think still needs to go back to Alan Moore because he would start every chapter of Watchmen with lyrics from a specific song, and I think they pretty much used a they they used a lot of those song choices while doing the film, um, you know, all along the Watchtower talking about the two riders approaching as. Daniel and Rorschach are flying towards Antarctica. Like I, when I was watching the movie, I agreed with you. I was like, wow, this music is all perfect for what we are seeing. And then going back and looking at the Watchmen comic, I was like, oh, that's because that's what was in Alan Moore's head when he was writing it. Yeah. It's, it's the music's phenomenal. The imagery is like nothing I had seen in a comic book film before. I have to say that now it is something that I have seen in a number of comic book films by Zack Snyder, which we're going to talk about um, in our next three podcasts, because there is it's when somebody does something remarkable. Um, I think of you introduced me to the band uh, Evanescence when Daredevil first came out, you were pretty high into Evanescence at the time. I remember you actually using an Evanescence song in the Romeo and Juliet that we did together. If oh, I their first correctly. album was incredible. Um, it was groundbreaking. It was like nothing anyone had heard before. Here's the problem. What'd you think of their second album? Not much. It's more, right? If their second album had been their first album, we would be saying their second album is incredible. It's like nothing we've ever heard before. But guess what? We've heard it before. And I think that their subsequent releases makes it so that when you go back to their first album, their first album is not so great at the time. You realize that, oh, this is what they do. This is their thing. And yeah, but that another way. Okay, but that, just to, to go with that, though, does, that doesn't necessarily make it a bad album. Like... Okay, no. they have a sound that they, they have a sound that doesn't last over the course of that, you know, where the, its impact doesn't last over the course of four albums. But th that first album, um, you know, and to this day, I hear Bring Me to Life and it was so overplayed that it does not in any way hit me at the same emotional level. That being said, for the first few weeks after that album came out, that music elevated me to a level of passion that very few uh, pop music uh, or, or popular music uh, albums have done before. So even well, though that didn't necessarily... I have a theory about comedy that I've talked about, about the rise and fall of comedians. And when comedians get you, they get you by giving you something you've never seen. But when Jim Carrey first came out, when I first saw the opening to Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, and I didn't really know Jim Carrey, I laughed so hard. Arthur, I laughed so hard when he's 
like bouncing around with that with that UPS box and just slamming into stuff. Everything he did, every face he made, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. This is unbelievable. It's so funny. And then by the sixth movie he did where he's doing it, it didn't make me laugh so much anymore. And I and I thought, oh, Jim Carrey's really lost it, but I don't think he did. The same thing was true of Will Ferrell. When Will Ferrell first started doing that sort of awkward going too far Will Ferrell thing he did, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so funny. Same thing with Ben Stiller with the uncomfortable comedy he would do. Eventually it wore off. And I think the problem is, mm-hmm. is that the essence of, of, of comedy is surprise. And once it no longer surprises you, it stops being funny. I think the problem is with the way that Snyder, by not being able to deviate from his style in this film... It feels like he's made so many films that are the same that it it blends together into sort of one long hodgepodge of you know I so, can't be impressed. So essentially, what with, you're so if if I'm understanding you correctly, what you were saying is you are not just judging Ace Ventura by Ace Ventura. You are also judging the quality of Ace Ventura based on Ace Ventura too, like retroact like. Things that somebody does after their breakout stuff can retroactively affect your appreciation of the original. Yeah, I think that there's there's I think specifically about the scene where the comedians thrown through the window at the time I was blown away. And keep in mind, the scene's not that different looking from the beginning of the Matrix Reloaded. Right. It's it's, it's a scene with somebody being thrown out a window. But I was mm-hmm. so impressed not knowing the visuals in the comic. Keep in mind, I didn't know the reference they were doing. And I'm even more impressed when I think of the reference they're doing. I go, oh my gosh, they just recreated it. They gave me, if I had been a fan of the comic, I would be seeing the thing that I always saw on the page brought to life in front of me. Holy shit. That would be amazing. And it was amazing anyway. But now that I've seen Batman v Superman... And I go, okay, well, they, it's sort of the same thing. I Now I watch God, Watchmen is- and this... This time that around, is so this is interesting it, to me how just the I got to say the concept of um, this movie was amazing when I saw it. Uh, I loved it. But now there are other mo- like the concept of seeing subpar, essentially subpar sequels and then going back and saying, well, that means that, that it's the subpar. First one Maybe they were good. amazing. Maybe they were just as good. Maybe they were just as good. But we don't have the appreciation for them because they we are not impressed by the things that they're doing anymore. You know, it's like when you get obsessed with a new food, you try a new food for the first time. So there's a I'll give it a better example. When I took economics in college, they talked about something called utility. And utility is essentially what you get out of something that you are paying for. And they talk about a Big Mac. We talked about a Big Mac. And one of the things they talked about is that your first bite of a Big Mac, if you've never had a Big Mac, or if you love a Big Mac and haven't had a Big Mac in a very long time, that first bite of a Big Mac is astoundingly awesome. Or that first bite of a sip of a peppermint mocha at Christmas time, or that first bite is incredible. And your second bite is only ever going to be 50 to 75% of the quality of the first bite. So by the time you finish a Big Mac, you're just finishing your Big Mac. It's never going to be as good as the, the first uh, bite. That okay. You so I think what, so it sounds like what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is like my approach on this. Because first off, I agree with you about. Um, everything that you're describing, the, uh, um, you know, the, the Ace Ventura, the, the, I mean, the Ace Ventura effect is a really good way of calling it. Um, you know, I agree with that theory of comedy. 
um, I guess it's for me, I'm coming at this from a, look, I know what Zack Snyder did after Watchmen. Uh, you know, I have, I have opinions about what Zack Snyder did after Watchmen, but that's not applicable to the reviewing of Watchmen. Whereas what you are saying, um, and again, I'm not even saying it's wrong. It's just interesting to me. What you are saying is that you cannot review Watchmen separate from the consideration of the entirety of Snyder's body of work because it actively, you know, because, um, because his later body of work affects your directly affects your appreciation of the, of his early. I didn't do it on purpose. It didn't walk into this wanting to do that. And maybe I watched the wrong cut for this because I think that the, the the fact that you break up the pacing from what you're saying that's that sounds that sounds like a very possible culprit um well here's the other thing though right and i i didn't intend to feel the way i felt but this is i i'm able to sort of parse out i edit movies right i've edited features i'm editing my 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 fourth feature my seventh movie that i've edited and i and i can tell what a good edit that first was compared to everything that came after but can I say this, having seen all of the rest of Zack Snyder's work and even going backward to 300, this time with me not being emotionally invested in Watchmen because of the the extra stuff, the, the Black Freighter stuff that was added in, I will say this. It felt like a lot of posing. I felt like there was a lot of someone jumps in and poses to take the to, to create the frame. And then does another thing that poses. You know, I felt like, 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 you know, Silk Spectre jumps in and poses. And I felt like there was so much posing that now that I've realized that, I'm a little afraid to go back as we're going to do in the next few weeks and watch Man of Steel and go, is this how I'm going to feel? I'm going to go like, oh my gosh, they move quick and then pose and move quick and then mm-hmm. pose. Have I... Have I realized what the trick is? Do I know what the what what's the the prestige is in in this? Um, that what it Zack is Snyder definitively does is part of Snyder's style. He does it a lot in Three Hundred as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of pose. its effects is it is <coughs> it does make for a movie that feels like a comic book, which is a cool effect. Are you a Family Guy fan? Uh, it is an it is an effect that can be overdone. Sorry, what did you say? Are, are you a Family Guy fan? Yes, you're going to go into your manatee theory, aren't you? Or not your manatee theory, but the manatee theory. Well, here's what happened to me. I was a huge Family Guy fan when it came out. When it went off the air, I was really pissed off. When it came back, I was way into it. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. I was, oh my gosh. Then I watched South Park. And South Park dissected Family Guy to the point where it's not funny anymore to me. Where I watch it and I go, they, it's, like, it's like somebody told the magic trick. They said how it worked. And I wonder if I just figured out what Zack Snyder's magic trick is. And now that I know it, it's not entertaining to me anymore. Um, I think that's I, a I, dissecting the magic trick. I think it's a really good way of, of putting it. It is. There's a there's a major rule. Uh, there's two major rules with mag- magicians. The first is you do not reveal the trick. You do not reveal another magician's trick like that is absolutely a no, no. And also frequently is you do not repeat a trick immediately because that heightens the ability of people to sort of dissect it and see what's going on because magic is all about keeping that sense of wonder. And you are absolutely right. Once you know 
the science, you know, once you know what's going on behind it, the wonder goes away. Uh, it is, <laughs> unfortunately, essentially what we are doing, you know, you have, we have both to a certain degree chosen professions um, by which, you know, or certainly interests like this podcast by which our job is to remove wonder from our own experiences. But I don't think that means that we necessarily have to feel what I can tell you when it happened, Arthur. I can tell you it was when Silk Spectre jumped into the prison and the action was great. The action was fine, but it kept being like I was feeling there like pose and pose. And pose, and then they have their sex scene. I was like, and then they're doing this image, and then they're doing this image, and then they're doing the the orgasm shot. Boom! And then I was starting to get, oh, oh, you're just you're just creating frames. You're creating postcards over and over and over and over again, and they're very pretty. They're very nice, but it the more I feel the wheels of the 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 visuality if that's even a word which it's not turning the less i'm into the characters and it's not surprising and we'll get to it when we do justice league it's not surprising that this did not gel with joss whedon's way of making a film which is a little more about like let's just you know deal with the people and it's you know if you can as long as you get into the heart of the common person then you're fine and I can I can't think of a if you had to get somebody to take over a Zack Snyder film, I can't think of a worse person than Joss Whedon to take over well, a, a Zack very, Snyder film. Yeah, and the the Snyder I mean Snyder's pose shots are that's kind of it's also kind of become iconic Snyder uh, to the extent that it's like if you're gonna see if you if you're about to watch um, a film or show by David Lynch. There are certain things that you can expect. You're about to see some weird shit go down, and you know that. Um, you know now there are a lot of people who don't like David Lynch because the weird shit is just too weird. I mean, I got maybe four episodes into Twin Peaks, and I was just like, "No, no, I'm out of this." Um, in the same sense, like I go into any Zack Snyder film, and I know I'm going to get. Yeah, I think you you hit it exactly. I go into it knowing. Oh, there's going to be a lot of pose shots in this film. That is Zack Snyder's M.O. Um, I think there are some there are some styles and some stories for which that style fits very well, and then there are many for which it does not. Um, the question pose is, style, I think it worked really. I think it worked really well in Three Hundred, which was less about that was a more sort of action military esque film it was yeah i mean yes there was character development in it but really it was about you know the soldiers fighting against overwhelming odds so the uh you know so the beautiful pose shots on the battlefield um they didn't take away from the story the hbo series has none of this there's it's it's not that it's visually bad it's just that it is almost shot like a procedural it's just it's so real which is kind of what when i said that this gets the essence of the comic when you watch the show, the show is shot like CSI or something. It's shot as if Which, it's totally a hundred percent in the real world, and there just happen to be masks. And which you could make an arguable case for is the actual spiritual essence or the tonal essence of the original comic. Exactly, um, and I one think of that, the criticisms. That, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, please. 
I think the the major issue that I have with it, and again, I liked this film. I'm going to rate this film pretty well. Um, upon second viewing, uh, the fight scenes I loved at first. The first time around, I was like, oh, because I was watching them, and I remember thinking in the theater, oh, this is the first time that, like, Night Owl and Jupiter Girl, or, you know, or Silk Spectre, uh, feel like superheroes. You know, the level of damage they're doing to these people, the, um, you know, so it's sort of, they it elevated them. But then upon second viewing with it, and even before that, just sort of thinking afterwards, I was like, but the whole point of the comic was arguably that these people were not superheroes. They were just humans doing um, doing violent things. Um, by stylizing the violence to the Zack Snyder degree, that kind of goes against um, the very down-to-earth, nitty-gritty uh, feel of this. I think that ultimately, you can't separate... It's, you can't separate your your new experience from your first experience. I think it's unfair to the ultimate version of the film. I do think that if you're watching this, if you're listening to this because you're like con- considering watching Watchmen. So I listen to podcasts about movies that I haven't seen. And sometimes I go back and see them. And I think if you are a big superhero film fan that never got around to Watchmen and you've seen the Justice League movies and then you're coming back to it, you're going to feel a lot of the same. And you might not have the experience that I had. Um, But if you are not a superhero film, I I don't know who the audience is for this film now. And that's a thing is that that like who's listening to this podcast, who's listening to the Totally Super podcast, who is not seen Justice League. It seems unlikely that those two, that person will exist. Um, and I feel like Watchmen is now has to be placed next to the other Snyder films. And I think it's not going to have the impact it did. So I think the best I can do as a reviewer right now is to, is to say when I first saw it, I had not seen anything like it. And it affected me just how cool it was. And the stylized part of it, well, that's necessary. I paid some money to see a superhero film. And they managed to deliver yeah. on the superhero film enough, that, which is really only like, you know, in a two-hour and 20-minute film, it's really only like 20 minutes of the movie. They managed to deliver yeah. on that enough that I'm satisfied that I've gotten what I, I've gotten my money's worth out of it. And yet I am getting, I'm getting everything else. Like you said, they've, they've taken Watchmen down. And when you say it makes sense, I don't think that's terribly fair. Yeah. I don't think people understand what you mean by that because wait, to wait, say it made sense means that, that you're saying make- there is a logical, no, it's like, it makes emotional sense the first time you see it. And, and especially you haven't seen the others. And I think you get the same feeling you would have gotten reading the comic and feel satisfied on a superhero standpoint too i just don't know so i was just listening this week to a podcast about the original king kong you know the 1933 king kong and Mm -hmm. the reviewers there were having a really hard time reviewing the film without separating themselves with the fact that the special effects don't really work anymore and this film it's not that they don't work visually anymore but i don't think they have the wow that they once had anymore because we know the effect now. We've seen it a hundred times. And I think those moments, believe it or not, the moments that sold the film and gave me my money's worth, I think those are the moments now which 
are dated and don't work anymore. And I think where the film works is sitting at a diner or having a conversation with an old friend or the, mm-hmm. the story of the, the story parts I feel still work very, very well in our emotional, but I feel like the, the, the high minded visual stuff is, is the stuff that's aged the most poorly in my opinion. I, I would agree with that. Um, let me ask speaking of the story stuff, because, and part of this is, you know, we, we can't talk about the movie without talking about the actual story behind the movie and also the comic. Um, the, especially when the comic came out, the ending of, you know, not only, I mean, yes, we'd had the, oh, who we thought was a good guy was in fact a bad guy all along. Yes, that's fine. We've had that. But the moment to me that this, that in the comic and they did it in the movie, that this became something entirely different and new was when, you know, Daniel and Rorschach said, we're going to stop you. And Ozymandias said, stop me. Do, yeah, when he actually said, do you take me for some comic book superhero? Do you think I honestly would have told you my plan if there was the slightest iota of a chance you could have stopped me? I did this 30 minutes ago. That was just, I remember reading that, and that was that was a holy shit moment if I'd ever experienced one. Then follow and that up with the fact that he does this terrible thing that kills m- literally millions of people and saves the world. And most of the characters Rorschach accepted are like, well, okay, this is, this is, we, we keep this secret. We move on with it. All of that, it all makes, like, I can absolutely see myself in Night Owl's position in that situation, making that same call. But the fact that that happened in a superhero story was, I, I, it was, it was mind blowing to me. I was, I was curious your thoughts on that particular twist. No, I think that that is that that's such a great moment. We we joked about how the password was Ramsey's too, but if you think back, no, he he wanted them there. He brought them there. He expected them there. He the password was Ramsey's mm. too. Oh, that's a good take. Be- that's a good take. Because because he wanted them to figure it out. He left the clues. He's getting them off the board so that he can do what he's doing. Um because if they had not been with him, then there was a danger that they would have done something to stop it. And they didn't. So, so I, the, the twist and I, can I say this for all the faults that the film has visually and, and everything that comes out when you watch it over and over again, I have to give the film credit for changing the end of the comic where in the end of the comic, there's that a giant was going to be my That was going to be my next question. And I agree um, with you. This is better. They actually improved yeah. on the comic. The idea that you take a main character, you frame him up for it, and then have him go, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that works for me. Um, it's so much better than the random squid that shows up. It make, You're more emotionally connected to what happens. And I think that Just that for those who is, haven't, uh, for those who haven't read the comic, yeah. essentially, what it is is the... He still kills millions of people, but essentially he has people create... Uh, essentially a facsimile of some weird alien type creature and then drops it dead in the middle of New York. But as it's dropped, it like lets out this psionic blast that essentially kills millions of people. So it makes the world think, oh my God, aliens are real and they're attacking us. 
It's the version of the Vulcans showing up in Star Trek First Contact, except it's the darker version of the same thing. If there are aliens mm-hmm. out there, then the humanity is no longer a bunch of nation states. It's a big combined world, and we have a singular world yeah. because of that is the idea. I love that that doesn't work out and that the Watchmen TV series that you get is a reflection of what would happen next because, of course, it's what would happen next. and It's where we are now mm-hmm. in our history um, I think it's really interesting to look at. But in terms of creating a, a single film experience, I think that a giant alien squid showing up at the end is just so far out of left field. I would have disconnected. It would have been the, as you said, it's like the, you know, every every film can have one gimme. That would have been the gimme too far. I think I'd be using that word that you always call me on, unforgivable. Um, in comics, ah. maybe it works, but I think that I would go, you know, until this point they had me. The giant squid shows up and, you know, it's a movie, so you're going to have to show the moment, right? You're going to have to show the squid mm-hmm. coming down and a big giant squid. It's like a Godzilla movie. And I think yeah. the idea that, no, there are giant craters and everybody blames but Dr. Manhattan. Oh, my gosh, that makes yeah, sense. No, it's, squid makes so totally works sense. on the comic, would not work in the film. Yeah, I think that that change is something that I absolutely support is a really, really good choice. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I think that that I think the ending is really good. I think the twist at the end, the fact that he says is something that happened 30 minutes ago. Um, let's go down. Uh, it, it's amazing. We've got an hour into the podcast. We haven't done anything that we normally do. So let's really let's give a little lip service to the structure of the Totally Super podcast. This movie came out February uh, 23rd, 2009. Um, uh, where it was premiered. It came out in the United States full on March 6, 2009. It has a running time uh, theatrically of 163 minutes. It has a budget of 130 to 138 million, right around there with a box office of $185.3 million. That's not a hit. Keep in mind that with 130, it needs to reach 260 in order to break even. But on on uh, video, it does pretty well. On, pretty well on video, um, they actually have numbers for it, and it says that the first week of DVD sales brought in another 24 million in. Um, in money and brought 46 million in total in revenue um, to to combine with that original 185. So it's topping out at right around 220, and then over the years it's become a break-even piece. So while it was originally considered a failure, it is a break-even piece, and that is why we're getting a Watchmen TV series because it sort of entered the the zeitgeist. Uh, in terms of the characters, mm-hmm. we always like to go through and talk real quick. Um, Malin Ackerman as Silk Spectre Two. I think she's fine. I think that she is clearly the least ex- experienced on the uh, on the film. I don't think that she is. I think the character is interesting. I think she's the least inter- interesting character and least interesting actor in the film. Your thoughts? Um, I, I would agree with that. The uh, I, I'm trying to think with the exception of and I don't know any of the actors names, unfortunately, with the exception of Rorschach, um, none of the actors really blew me away. Um, I did like Patrick Wilson uh, as Night Owl. I thought he would. The thing he that, is such a the he thing is that, such a welcome spot. Like even his. his and that's the thing. Real, the, what what is so crucial for the Night Owl character and for Dan the character of Daniel is you need somebody you you need somebody who just seems like just a nice nebbishy guy uh, because then the fact that like the whole point of it in the comic was it's just like wait a minute this looks like you know that you know this looks like the guy who does tax you know this feels like the guy who does taxes 
uh, and then goes home and, you know, makes the same dinner every night. But then he turns around and he's actually the superhero fighting crime. Like the, um, he's just so normal. And I thought Wilson really, really embodied that. Um, Matthew Good, who's Ozymandias, is on the crown. I think he's fine. Um, Ozymandias is portrayed by a much better actor by the time you get to the series. I don't want to spoil anything. Um, Billy Crudup as Dr. Manhattan. It's, I think he's great. I don't know how much of it is him, if that makes yeah, sense. Dr. Manhattan is kind of, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to, it's kind of hard to play a, a distant, unfeeling God in any way that, you know, connects with people. Who is also computer well, generated and you can't really tell. Yeah. How much is him? Is it? But I think that Dr. Manhattan is a fascinating character in this. Um, oh, I will say, I like every time he's on screen, I love the voiceover work. Everything about him is interesting, and he is absolutely a standout character. I, he would almost be I my would, favorite. Yeah, Billy, uh, Billy Crudup's very soft, friendly, warm delivery of everything that Dr. Manhattan says, that I will give him. Like, that was a... That was not the voice I expected from like, that was not the voice that was in my head when I was reading the comic, but I think it works really, really well. Um, uh, Silk Spectre one is played by, uh, uh, Carla Gugino, um, or, or Cugino. Sorry. Um, I, can I, don't tell my wife. I have a little bit of a, of, of a crush on her, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that her Silk Spectre one is so lovely and complicated and and dark and tragic. And the fact that she falls in love with her rapist is is so you couldn't do it today. And yet it stuff like that happens. Um, and and it is so dark that that happens. I think that that is um, is is such a such an interesting and bizarre twist for her. Um, and to go on top of that, that she's the mom from spy kids, which blows me away. Ah. Um, and I, of course, having kids, I've seen all the spy kids, uh, movies. Um, I think that she is, she doesn't have that much to do. And she spent some of the time in not that great old age makeup. She is great. Yeah, I was going to say the old age makeup in this film is rough, but she is, um, she's spectacular. In this film, she does an amazing job, and I not uh, not only have a, a you know a, a lady crush on her, but also an actor crush on her. She is um, she is delivering on everything the 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 jaded semi high functioning alcoholic mom who's been through some shit is I I believe her in it even under mm-hmm. the bad makeup is great and it's also great to see as uh as a side note it's great to see matt frewer in anything cast him in everything i love him as uh as uh modok in this film of course he's max headroom oh yeah is what he'll he'll always be remembered as max headroom Uh, i met the dude and he's a cool guy he's a really neat dude um and so i always like to give props to him um uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan is great as the comedian. Actually, I think that he is also a standout and is really, 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 really good in this. Um, but come on, we all know whose film this is, right? Like, yeah, this is Rorschach's film. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jackie Earl Haley, born 1961, is uh, best known for his role in uh, in Breaking Away, which I remember watching with my dad and the Bad News oh my Bears. Gosh, he was in, in that. Yeah, he was a main character in that. He was the biking oh, bike wow. dude. 
And he was oh uh, he gosh. played he played Kelly Leak in the Bad News Bears and the Bad News like Bad News Bears and Breaking Training and the Bad News Bears goes to Penn. He's one of the Bad News Bears. He's huge. He's also Freddy Krueger in the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street in 2010, which for all the problems that that had, it's so funny being part of the horror community. People are like, I hate that film. I mean, Jake, Jackie O'Hurley did a really good job. He did a good job. Yeah. He's no Robert Engler. He also had a. He, uh, a re- he also was a major character in uh, that show, Human Target, that was on for a couple seasons. Um, yeah, he shows up in the very... battle, battle Angel. He's in yeah. Preacher. He's in The Tick. Um, I will watch you know, Jackie Hurley, Earl Haley in any, in anything. He is. He's yeah, he, wonderful. Yeah, he is so good. Um, he's good as Freddy. Um, he's he what he does with Freddie is so dark and interesting. He's so committed to this role, though. He will always be remembered um, for for Rorschach because he is mm-hmm. um, he is just phenomenal. He is phenomenal yeah. in this film. Um, uh, when he says you're you're stuck in here with me, he has me. He has me for the oh, rest yeah. of the film. And then the, when it's he terrifying. says do it. The, the the level of vulnerability that he brings to it he almost seems like a bro he seems like a broken little kid um yeah he is uh remarkable and it is his film and i have to give it to him for for being spectacular um we talked about yeah. the music we talked about the visuals we talked about the impact um the last thing i'm going to say before Ooh. we 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 jump off um well since we're doing uh so, so say your last thing then i'll say my last thing well, my last thing is that we are in an era now where you can have, you know, the destruction of the human race in Thanos' snap. And we can live in the aftermath of that for five years. And we get to know Captain America's pain and what it's like to live, a, to, to lead a, 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 an emotional rehab group. We get Daredevil in, in the, the Marvel netflix shows and everything that grew out of that we have things like you know yes we have fantastical things but the fact that we we feel the need in every marvel movie to bring the person back home and have them really spend time at home in a way that peter parker kind of it still see because it was peter parker was was envisioned by sam raimi who's wonderful but is a very stylized director in his own right who always has kind of a a a a detached comic book essence, even to his early films, you don't get the level of, of emotional seriousness that you have now with Marvel and eventually with the X-Men and, uh, you know, with Logan, I would say that you can look at Logan. You couldn't look, you know, it's with Zack Knight, with, with what Zack Snyder did later, I think you don't get Christopher Nolan's dark Knight trilogy. Without this film, I don't think you get Avengers Endgame without this film. You certainly don't get Logan without this film. You certainly don't get Kick-Ass, which you've talked about without this film. Mm -hmm. I can go on and on and on and on the way that this film changed the cinematic superhero landscape to go, hey, we need to dig deeper. And I think it's a wonderful testament to the way that the Watchmen comic book changed this, the comic book landscape to go, you must dig deeper. Because after this film, you couldn't just go back to, hey, yeah, yeah, Peter Parker's got some problems, but we'll do some big flashes and everything's good. Now you really have to dig in with these characters and you have to, you know, I don't think, I think you can take the Watchmen and you can take it forward all the way to Thanos' snap and go, it is a direct descendant of Watchmen. 
And I would, and I would completely I, agree with that. I think that, and that, that when I give my final review ahead. of the film, its impact must be felt. So um, that's my final thought. And then I'll give my rating after I hear yours. What are your final thoughts? So, so my final thought on it, and as you were saying, paying lip service to stuff that we've done in the podcast before, uh, I'm going to basically, I think this movie is a perfect example of a question that I asked a lot early on in the podcast and haven't asked that much recently, which is what does this movie say about what it means to be a superhero. And this was, uh, you know, the comic was so groundbreaking because the answer it provided to that question was very, very different than the answer that we were normally getting. And I think this movie reflected it pretty well, but I just, you think of the characters in it and I at least come away with this sense that even though Alan Moore, you know, has said he loves superhero comics, all these things like, but when held up to the filter of so harsh a reality, there is the sense that to be a superhero either means being an absolute total psychopath uh, like Rorschach. It means if you have if you have phenomenal superpowers, then that actually makes you so distant from the human condition and from humanity that you are no longer able to really relate to it like Dr. Manhattan um, it means that you potentially get the idea like that you get so used to the idea that you are the savior that that turns you into a megalomaniac who can end up doing tremendous damage like it did with Ozymandias. Or at the very least, you look at, say, the Silk Spectre and there is one and overall what it is saying is anybody who becomes a hero, you you don't get out of it without losing some of your sanity like you don't you don't become a superhero without in some way getting broken along the way so with those thoughts i have to ask you sir on a scale of one to five smiley face pins how would you rate watchmen uh i would give this a 4.25 um like this is a I, I even upon second viewing, I was like, this hangs together. This is an enjoyable watch. It is both as a movie. I think it does honor to its source material. It is still an enjoyable film. Uh, so for that alone, I think that would it was a rock solid four. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's impact. Like, I can't be certain that it's impact is quite as much as you're saying, because otherwise I'd boost it to a full four point five. Um, but it definitely, it has left a mark in the, uh, in the landscape of superhero films. Uh, so yeah, I'd give it a 4.25. Um, so my feeling is a little more complex than that. And that the experience I just had, I'd give a 2.5. Um, it was, um, I couldn't get through it. I was bored. I was watching it while I was doing the dishes. I was getting. Although through I have to say I, again, you were watching a di- that was a different movie. Yeah, hear me out. Hear me out. Hear me out. Um, it was homework that I was doing this time around, and that bummed me out because this was, like I said, my favorite superhero film for a while. But this conversation has changed me and brought me back to 
you know, March 2009, sitting there with my friends around me. Maybe you were there. I don't know. I know Alexia was. I can't believe how funny it was when she said the blue dick thing. And and on Trek Off, I give her a really hard time about it all the time um, because she wants that big blue dick. Um, uh, not an overly big blue dick, which I was surprised at because he's not that super heroic in that, in that department. Um, Just real quick, um, I'm saying I, it is an absolute missed opportunity that we're rating this on smiley pins and not on one to five big blue dicks one five big blue dicks um (laughs) um uh, i i would say that that my initial viewing of the film must be taken into account and the effect of the film must be taken into account so let's take my 2.5 for the director's cut or no for the ultimate cut do not watch the ultimate cut do not Ah. watch it Watch them separate. The Tales of the Black Fader is, was an actual interesting story. I was kind of into it. It was kind of neat. But the way that they've edited it into the film is distracting and disruptive. Don't watch it in that way. Watch Watchmen and then watch Tales of the Black Fader. And I think you'll have a better time. The director's cut does give you some more stuff, like 20 minutes more stuff. I think you're okay doing the, the theatrical release. I don't think you're missing major stuff that you absolutely need. Um, without watching the theatrical release. So I say that's a way to go. And that brings me back to the concise film that I remember. And when I start talking about it, I start going, you know, we talked about how great Jackie Jackie Earl Haley is in this film, but I go, gosh, the comedian was pretty great, actually. And Dr. Manhattan was pretty great. And Night Owl was such an interesting, a friendly Batman. That's really cool. And Ozymandias is kind of cool how we can catch that bullet. And what they have to say about the Vietnam War is cool. And the alternate history and the use of music and the use of visuals. And 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 I go, okay, but it's tired a little bit. because And, and that brings it down because I, I can't unsee Zack Snyder's other films. But then I think about the Netflix it wasn't until during this conversation when I brought back the Netflix MCU shows and I went, huh, hmm. you don't have those without this. You certainly don't have the boys, which because it's a TV show, we're not reviewing the boys, but holy no, shit, guys, true. watch the boys on Amazon prime. It's astoundingly good. Um, and Daredevil is astoundingly good. And Logan's astoundingly good. And Endgame is astoundingly good. And you go, all of this is the child of a film that dared to go, hey, can we just watch superheroes be people and see how fucked up that is? And when I do that and I consider the impact of the film, my 2.5 jumps right up to a four. I'm going to give it a four. And I would even give it a retroactive like 4.5 if I had never seen anything else Zack Snyder did. But the fact is he is a bit of a one trick pony and Mm -hmm. he retroactively damages this film by doing the same things, making some of the same music choices, making some of the same visual choices over and over and over again. It makes this film less special. You know, it's like a, it's like a guy who had found the love of his life. And when it didn't work out, he got another girl that looked just like her. And when that didn't work, I got another girl that looked just like her. Suddenly the, the romance I have for this film is decreased a little by the fact that he just, everything you are doing, everything you are saying makes absolute perfect sense. The only, so my only thing with that, and I don't know if you have seen this, but just as a general thing for all people out there, um, if watching the Zack Snyder one trick pony, uh, has the potential to ruin or to hurt your experience of the Zack Snyder stuff that you loved, dear God, do not ever watch Sucker Punch. Don't it do will, it. Like, 
don't don't do it it will like it it is a like actually the way that you're describing it justin it is a miracle that having watched sucker punch has not ruined Watchmen for me yeah um but that being said i think it's an important film and if you watch the theatrical cut it's a it's an entertaining film it it does everything it's trying to do it's not as groundbreaking as the comic but damn they did it and they pulled it off and i think that it's it's a deep film in a genre that we're used to the deep shit now and i think that's the big thing that we can't undo in 2019 from 2009 we have the boys now we have daredevil mm. now yeah. but we didn't have it back then and when I saw this for the first time, I was like, oh, this is a thing. We can do this now. And I think that that if I'm able to bring myself back to 2009, which I'm able to do, and if I'm able to look at, at the achievement that this is, and it is an achievement, it's going to, you know, I'm going to pump it up to a 4.25. I'm going to give it a 4.25. Despite my misgivings, despite my problems, I know this is a surprise. I'm going to bump it up to a 4.25 because it is... It is diminished by everything that came after, but everything that came after is by definition a Xerox of this film. And Mm. I can't fault the original for the copies that came after, even the copies that came that were better. I think the boys is better than this version of Watchmen. I think the HBO's Watchmen is better than this Watchmen, but you don't get those without this. It's the Lord of the Rings effect. I have read numerous authors who I would consider to be superior fantasy novelists than Tolkien. But at the same time, none of them would have existed without Tolkien. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I think that the for what this for for this film would be a three point seven five to a four. Um, it's pulled down from a five by the stuff that came after, but it's elevated to a four point two five for the fact that the stuff that came after is based on this film. So Watchmen mm-hmm. is a uh, solid recommend for me. Um, go see it, yeah. but just just get the theatrical release. Make a night of it. Don't make three <laughs> nights of it because holy shit, guys, that 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 ultimate cut is hard <laughs> to get through. <laughs> it's not fun. Um, but it was fun doing this. So uh, we've we've referenced uh, what are we doing next, uh, ladies and gentlemen. If you like to hear us criticize Zack Snyder. We're going to be doing the Justice League trilogy, um, which is uh, going tune to tune in for Man of Steel, where I'm going to find all sorts of new reasons to criticize Zack Snyder that I didn't even talk about in this one. And to stay tuned for Man of Steel, where I give some things a pass because I think it's not as bad. I, my memory of it is hearing everybody crap all over it and understanding the crap and trying to unremember the damn you honest trailers for being so right, but also ruining stuff that I love. Um, <laughs> because because it, it made me look back at the film and go, holy shit, that's true. But, um, but I also have to say, I think there's some real great stuff in Man of Steel that needs to be considered. And I think there's really good stuff in Batman V Superman and justice league. I have really strong opinions about, and I don't know what they are. I'm looking forward to rewatching it. And we're going to talk about, of course, hashtag release the Snyder cut, um, which I think we need to hold off on until we get to justice league, because I have very strong feelings about hashtag release the Snyder cut. And you and I are going to have to, to have the discussion about whether or not I'm just fiercely loyal to Joss Whedon or if I've never Zack Snyder was really hashtag, the problem, but so. that's down the road. But we have three more Snyder DC 
combinations um, culminating in Justice League and Wonder Woman and Aquaman will be done separately from that because I think they deserve to be. I think you can consider us, uh, I think Aquaman will probably hold off until they give us Aquaman 2 and I think that probably you'll hear us do Wonder Woman 1 when Wait, Wonder haven't Woman we, haven't we done Aquaman? I'm sorry? Haven't we done Aquaman? Did we do Aquaman? I, I can't I remember. I mean, I remember talking to Maybe we did it. I think it's. I know we didn't. I think it's did entirely possible Woman? that we did Aquaman. Did we? Did I forget that we did an Aquaman podcast? Now I'm gonna have to look it up. <laughs> but, but certainly, uh, this trilogy of film needs to be looked at, and we absolutely will. Uh, but for now, my name is Justin, and my name is Arthur. And hey there, true believers, stay super. Why did why do we go right to Batman? You're, you're, <laughs> Yeah, well, that was the thing. No, I was trying for Rorschach, and then I ended up with Christian Bale Batman. I think your, you I think your, yours was better. Do you, do, do you podcast? You will. <laughs> Stay super. All right, bye. Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not-safe-for-work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Enlight Entertainment.